Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, Pressurized, a short, punchy version of our main feed that gets right to the scientific point. If you like what you hear, you'd like to hear the full episode, you can find it in the same feed. And now, to get right to the point. I've got a great paper for you. I think it was out this week. The title's called Alien Species Invasion of Deep Sea Bacteria into Mouse Gut Microbiota. They reckon 9 of 106 deep sea bacterial samples from sediment alter the gut bacterial communities of mice and induce all sorts of strange things, mostly inflammatory symptoms. So I, I read it thinking, okay, so if you put if you put deep sea bacteria into a mouse, it can cause all sorts of problems and lots of inflammatory things going on and liver damage and glucose metabolism deterioration and everything else. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, oh, geez, like how much deep sea bacteria has been through you and I? <laughs> <laughs> Might explain a lot, actually. <laughs> the too long didn't read version of that is you expose a mouse to novel bacteria and they have a, an immune response but the, the third highlight is the deep sea sediments containing the bacteria destroying the health of mice were distributed in hydrothermal vents ocean basins and hadal trenches of the indian ocean the atlantic and the pacific if there's any uh, hydrothermal vent ocean basin or hadal trench scientists out there uh, who have pet mice uh, go and wash your hands yeah. this is about how plate tectonics mountains and deep sea sediments help to maintain earth's goldilocks climate Back in the Cretaceous period, we had an atmospheric CO2 level of above 1,000 parts per million, and compare that today with our 420 parts per million. So back then, temperatures were up to 10 degrees higher, so it's kind of the scenario we're worried about right now, rising CO2 levels. The Earth's climate began to cool around 50 million years ago, during the Cenozoic era. That culminated in an ice house climate, in which the temperature dropped by roughly 7 degrees cooler than it is today. So there's been like a 17 degree fluctuation in Earth's life-supporting history, based on the CO2 levels in the atmosphere. So the team theorised that the tectonic conveyor belt was the culprit, or at least a large part in it and the model they constructed indicated that in the hot Cretaceous phase the plates were fast moving and so lots of carbon containing material was pushed down in the subduction zones which caused a lot more to be released as CO2 from volcanic forearc events and the opposite was true in the Stenozoic cooling but it wasn't the whole story so the plates slow down when there's friction between them and this friction creates our super deep subduction trenches which we love very much and also mountain ranges as they sort of buckle and distort uh, due to the resistance. So after mountains form, they're eroded and dissolved minerals carried down rivers into the sea and they encourage marine production. The carbon gets locked up in marine organisms and also in their shells as calcium carbonate. And so that eventually forms a carbon-rich marine sediment that was locking away a load of CO2 systems there. Like, it's all it's all happened before. And I've seen a lot of people, like, use that as a reason of, like, oh, we don't need to worry now, it's happened before. But vast majorities of life on Earth died. <laughs> like, the whole idea that, like, if something's natural, it can't be bad. Um, there's also some really interesting work going on with cave ecosystems. I particularly like these as fascinating parallels to the deep sea. The differences between animals, deep sea adapted and cave adapted, are really interesting places to look at how evolution works. So isolated cave systems provide many independent opportunities for cave species to specialize and evolve. An excellent example of convergent evolution, it tends to be predictable uh, when animals radiate into a cave system, the way they adapt to that system tends to go the same way every time. 
So some recent genetic research has focused on the Olm, which is a cave-adapted salamander, so no pigment, no eyes. It lives for hundreds of years, and it can go years without eating. And they all colonize caves independently. And that feels a lot like our hadal snailfish. You know, they're doing it over and over again, sort of from a previous lineage, and then end up isolated in there and radiating in their, their new selected environment. Do cave animals use bioluminescence? In New Zealand, you get the glowworms, and they use it uh, oh, yeah. to attract prey. So they, they hang from the ceilings and they glow and they're sticky and bugs and things that have found their way into the cave fly at the lights, I think, looking for a way out and they get stuck and they get eaten. Can I do one more story? Maybe we can generate energy from the deep sea. So liquids with a low boiling point like ammonia could be circulated in a closed system, boiling in the warm surface waters, driving a turbine and then being recondensed using cold seawater. Plans include pipes going down over 600 meters into the deep ocean, and the closed loop heat exchange system would always be available, so it wouldn't be like solar and wind, which uh, relies on the weather a little bit. The technology is not quite there yet. There is a pilot system in Hawaii, but it's not as efficient as other renewables. But it may be an excellent choice for small island nations, which currently rely heavily on diesel for power generation. So they're kind of cost-benefit analysis is different because that's very expensive, very wasteful, and quite polluting. So it might prove more efficient than their current methods. Uh, so there, that was an interesting one. Why is there so much convergent evolution within cave systems that favours the loss of eyes? So eyes are expensive to make, they're vulnerable to disease, but they're so, they're so quickly lost in things like the cave systems. And we're often asked by members of the public when we give talks about our deep sea critters, people are surprised that the vast majority of them still have eyes and some of them have incredibly well-developed eyes. Even long, long beyond any sort of solar light. Bioluminescence and the creation of their own organic light is probably the major form of communication on the planet, both between individuals of a species, but also for both defense and attacking prey. I'm lucky enough to be joined by a bit of deep sea royalty, really. Edith Edie Widder, a very well-known oceanographer from the US with a jam-packed career of pioneering research into bioluminescence and tech development for deep sea exploration. She currently works as CEO and senior scientist for the non-profit organization ORCA, the Ocean Research and Conservation Association, which she co-founded back in 2005, and has recently released her book, Below the Edge of Darkness, which captures Edie's personal journey into the deep sea and of understanding our world's most used form of communication, bioluminescence. Could you describe the sort of bioluminescent landscape? One of the big questions when I first started out was how much bioluminescence is there in the open ocean environment when we're not down there stirring it up? So the problem is you've always got that connection to the surface ship that's bouncing up and down. And if you try to moor something to the bottom, then there are currents that also stimulate luminescence. And it turned out that the perfect way to answer that question was a little single person submersible, which was deep rover. And I was trained as a pilot on Deep Rover, and the first dive I made to the deep sea, that was the first thing I wanted to know, was how much luminescence is there when I'm down there not stirring it up. And so it was very easy to trim it out to neutral buoyancy. You could go dead in the water, turn out the lights, and I sat there with my digital watch ready to count the numbers of flashes, and there was nothing. I, I was shocked. And when I was sitting there after a couple of minutes of complete, utter blackness, 
I bumped the thrusters on purpose. And sure enough, I got these vortices of neon blue light streaming out of the thrusters with all these blue sparks mixed in that looked like just when you throw a log on a campfire and the embers swirl up off the campfire. I mean, there was light everywhere as soon as I moved. And I, I had this instant revelation that this is a bioluminescent minefield. And <laughs> that's a big deal. So the analogy that I now give people is imagine that you're in something like the Superdome and it's pitch black and there's apples dangling from strings from the ceiling, which means you can survive if you can find the apples. The trouble is also dangling from the ceiling are these little blue LEDs that light up on contact. So every, anytime you go looking for an apple, you're at risk of lighting these up, which is a problem because you're sharing this space with a black panther <laughs> that is also hungry. So you're fine so long as you don't move. But the instant you get so hungry that you can't not move anymore, you have to go looking for one of those apples. You've got to worry about the first flash you trigger, the head of that panther is going to snap around and lock onto your location. If you think in those terms, then a lot of the things that don't make sense initially start to make sense. So you have things like shrimp and squid and fish that can squirt bioluminescent chemicals into the water, temporarily blinding the attacker while you make an escape into the darkness. And that's a lot more believable when you start thinking in the, that Superdome analogy. Um, yeah. and the eyes of deep sea animals are so adapted to a, such dim, dim light, and they don't have eyelids in many cases to protect themselves from a bright light. It, it is amazing the animals that can jettison bioluminescent material. As It's almost like throwing your shadow. It's, it's throwing your appearance and then you can you can make a getaway behind it. Yeah, and they they do it in a lot of different ways. So some of them, you know, a cloud of light. Some of them, it sparkles and intermittent flashes. And uh, one of the ones that intrigues me a lot is the deep sea fish Circea. It has the common name shining tube shoulder because it squirts luminescence out of a, a tube. It's basically on the equivalent of a fish's shoulder. And it doesn't just shoot out the luciferin and luciferase, which are the chemicals that trigger the light reaction. It's whole cells, which is very unusual and energetically very costly. Really, it's astonishing how many people think we've explored our planet. That's the excuse for going out into outer space. Because we're explorers, we just have to keep exploring. Well, we haven't even begun to explore our own planet. I know another one of your your philosophies is having a minimal impact on the animals we're trying to observe. If we went into a rainforest in a two-ton minivan and trundled along with our high beams on, ironically only looking maybe a couple of meters in front of us, we'd have a very different opinion of what it's like in a rainforest. I would always think about how many animals there must be just beyond the range of my lights <laughs> that were could see me, but I couldn't see them. How could I ever see them and know what their behaviors were going to be like? You know, these strange adaptations, how are we ever going to be able to work them out unless we can observe the animals unobtrusively? And submersibles are just so noisy and so bright and remote operated vehicles, even more so. That clearly wasn't the way to get at the problem. I got this idea for wanting to put a camera system on the bottom, but I wanted to use some kind of illumination that would allow me to see the animals without them seeing the light, which we do all the time when we're observing nocturnal animals. We use infrared light and infrared sensitive cameras. 
But you can't do that in the ocean because infrared light is absorbed so quickly by water. In fact, water is used as a filter to filter out infrared light. And so I was experimenting with different colors of red light. And so I had some recently developed bright LEDs, but I could tell that the animals were seeing it, but they would shy away from the camera system. And, you know, when the lights came on, sometimes they'd even bolt. So I was looking around for a solution to that. And some years before that, I had been doing a spectrometry on the stoplight fish, Aristostomius. And it is an unusual deep sea fish in that whereas most deep sea animals can only see blue light and only produce blue light, because that's the wavelength that travels furthest through seawater. So you're optimizing for communication by selecting for blue. The stoplight fish can also emit red light from a large light organ under each eye, and it can see that red light. So it uses it like a sniper scope to be able to sneak up on animals that it can see, but they can't see it. And I had been surprised when I dissected that light organ to discover that there was a filter over it that was filtering out all the shorter wavelength. If you removed it, the light organ was more orange. And it was really eliminating a lot of the shorter wavelengths. And so I just copied that filter on the I and the C illumination system and put in a short wavelength cutoff filter. And finally, I was able to see without being seen. And the first time I got to test the system was on an expedition in the Gulf of Mexico in 2004. So I had developed an optical lure that we called the electronic jellyfish that was a ring of blue LEDs that could imitate the pinwheel display of the deep sea jellyfish Atola. So this first expedition where I had the new illumination system and the optical lure all working at the same time, I put it down and I had programmed the I and the C to just record video for the first four hours without turning on the optical lure because I really wanted to convince myself that the animals weren't seeing the light. And I could tell, though, that the fish weren't perturbed. In fact, they would sometimes swim straight towards the camera. And then four hours into the deployment, I had programmed the electronic jellyfish to come on for the very first time. 86 seconds yeah. after I turned on the uh, electronic jellyfish for the first time, we recorded a squid over six feet long, completely new to science. It could not even be placed in any known scientific family. And I could not have asked for a better proof of concept for what this camera system could do for us. So the concept behind that display is it's what's known as a bioluminescent burglar alarm. And just like the burglar alarm on your car with the beeping horn and flashing lights, it's meant to attract attention to whoever is attacking them. So they don't use that display unless they're caught in the clutches of a predator in the hopes that in the scuffle, they can possibly escape. Can you describe the first footage of Arcatuthis ducks, the giant squid? I was not a giant squid hunter by any means, but I had this video of the Humboldt squid attacking the electronic jellyfish over and over again. And I showed it at the first TED talk I ever gave. Mike Degree was there and he was a giant squid hunter. And so he, he said, you know, do you think this would work for the giant squid? And I, it hadn't even crossed my mind, but I said, yeah, I mean, we're talking about the biggest eyes in the world. <laughs> and I think they're probably adapted for seeing bioluminescence. So I could imagine it might actually work. 
And so it was Mike that got me invited on this television-funded expedition off Japan in 2012. It was it was a pretty amazing expedition, and uh, but it was actually the second deployment of the Medusa, but the first with the electronic jellyfish. One deployment of the Medusa without the e-jelly and didn't see much of anything. And then the second one with the e-jelly got the first video ever recorded of a giant squid in its natural habitat. And we saw, we had four sightings of the giant squid with the Medusa on that expedition. To go from zero to four in one expedition. Yeah, well, actually... (laughs) It ended up being five because um, we also got the amazing high-resolution footage that was shot from the Triton submersible. And that was using red light illumination. And we had low-light cameras. And then he had an optical lure attached to, not my e-jelly, but just a squid jig attached to a big diamond bait squid. And that brought in the giant squid. And once it had started feeding... He risked turning on the white lights, and once it had a meal, it wasn't going to let go of it. And so Mm. we got 20, I think it was 23 minutes of high-resolution video of a giant squid, which was just incredible. And then one other little side note from that, we got after after it left, we recovered the sub with the bait squid still attached. And looking at the bait squid, it just had these little delicate nibbles out of it. <laughs> and, you know, we have this image of a giant squid as this ravenous beast. But like yeah. all squid, it's got this weird evolutionary quirk where its gullet runs through a, its donut-shaped brain. Gotta and take so little they, bites. Gotta take little <laughs> bites or you're going to have the worst brain headache you ever can imagine. One of my favorites was on an expedition where we had the eye in the sea down and I was using a different display from the, um, the e-jelly, um, which was just a single LED flashing and it would flash and then something out in the water would flash back, but it, <laughs> it, would, it would leave a string of dots in a circle, like a spiral. And so it was the best example I ever had of feeling like I was talking to the animals. I don't know what I was saying, but I think it was something sexy. <laughs> the amount of behavior that must be coordinated through this is a mode of, of communication as well. When I'm sort of trying to preach to people about deep sea animals in the right context, even when we have an amazing specimen and people are sort of like, oh, this is horrible looking, look at the teeth on this fish and things like that. You're still not seeing it in the right context because that's not how they appear to each other. To each other, they're a beautiful light show and they're tantalizing smells and they're probably sound as well. They're probably vocalizing. It's a very difficult thing for us as fruit hunting mammals to imagine really so I, I love stuff like that yeah i do too and i agree we have to have more cameras in the ocean more eyes in the sea to be able to have any hope of discovering what these animals are doing i've got to ask about the wasp suit and what that was like it was especially incredible because it was actually my first introduction into the deep sea i'd never been in a submersible before it was uh, the idea of dr bruce robeson to try to use this suit that was actually developed for the offshore oil industry for diving on oil rigs down to 2,000 feet to explore what was then and still is the least explored habitat on the planet, which is the open ocean, the midwater. And so then my very first dive was in the Santa Barbara Channel. The reason I was doing this, because I wanted to see the bioluminescence that I'd heard described, but nobody could photograph. And I went down to 800 feet and turned out the lights and I was prepared to dark adapt to be able to see the bioluminescence. Absolutely no dark adaptation was necessary. (laughs) I 
I was in the middle of a fireworks display that just absolutely took my breath away. That moment changed the course of my career because I actually had a postdoc lined up in neurobiology, which was what I was planning to do. I just had to know more and I turned down my postdoc and ended up staying on in bioluminescence. And I'm very glad I did. This incredible career and a lot of these incredible stories have formed your recent book, which was released last year. Yes, Below the Edge of Darkness. It, it's a memoir, which is something I never, ever imagined writing. And I, yeah, the whole thing has just been kind of astonishing <laughs> to me. Thank you so, so much for your time. Take care. Bye-bye. Hello. This is Don Walsh, oceanographer, explorer, and a former submarine officer in the United States Navy. My title for this uh, Sea Story broadcast is Why Submariners Do Not Like Marine Life. A submarine's primary advantage is stealth, and we work hard to avoid detection. But that can be compromised very easily, even by life in the sea, because our eyes in the sea are actually our ears. So for the purposes of this uh, story, I define marine life as those organisms that interfere with sound in the sea. Well, what are some of these effects? The first probably is uh, they're noisy. Uh, so many of these uh, critters make uh, active biological noise that can make you partially deaf. Not a good idea when there are adversaries nearby. However, that's not all bad because if there's enough of that noise in the sea, the other guy has trouble finding you. Another negative effect is bioluminescence, where light-emitting organisms illuminate the outline of your submarine while you're submerged so that an aircraft looking down can uh, easily uh, see you if you're near the surface. And then there's the problem of false depth indications through the deep scattering layer, which can cause uh, navigational confusion, showing that the seafloor is much shallower than it should be on the charts. However, I must admit that in my 15 years in submarines, these problems rarely cause difficulties. But one difficulty may be too many if you're close in with an adversary. And now a final comment. I don't eat seafood. Why? It's a social contract. In other words, when I'm on land, I leave them alone. And when I'm at sea, they leave me alone and serve me well. Well, that's it for now. And thanks for listening. We'll deep see you next time. And I abyss you already. The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company, Amatus Oceanic. If you'd like to explore the deep sea for yourself, we can provide the technology and know-how to allow you to do that. Or if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience through storytelling, fact-checking, or presentations, we can help with that as well. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone.